0: This is Studio A from Interlaken Public Radio. Welcome to Studio A at Interlaken Public Radio. I'm Kate Botello, here with Gohar Vardanyan, a renowned guitarist, a concertizer, a teacher, an Interlaken alumna coming back here for the first time in 10 years. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you
1: so much for having me. I really can't believe it's been that long.
0: Right. And you're doing a lot while you're here. You've got master mm-hmm. class and recital. And what are you most looking forward to in this homecoming here? Well, I was stalking my teachers,
1: <laughs> at least the ones that were that are still on campus. Many of them have retired. Um, but I found my chemistry teacher and my history teacher I just went by their classrooms. I would say that was I was looking forward the most to it, just to uh, to say hi to them again. So
0: and That's great. And of course, the educational arm is so interesting, the way they work with artists and all of that.
1: Yeah, and I explored the campus a little bit. It has changed a lot. I'm um, class of 2004, so 20 years ago, it's 2024, um, many of the buildings on campus now were not here. Um, so the new dance studios, the music building, the what is it? The visual arts building. I was just saying, like in the past, we had this building in between what's now the library that used to be our gym, JVS. Um, And the Maddie building, there was this gray kind of concrete square building that was the visual arts um, building. And now it's completely gone. So to pass by that and see empty space, it was strange. And my dorm room, I found my windows that I had. I (laughs) sent it to my roommate. I'm (laughs) like, was this our window or was it the one next to
0: it? (laughs) I love that. And this was kind of cool because you have not yet seen the guitar studio, and you used to rehearse and learn in a very different space. Can you tell us about yes, that?
1: Yes, our studio was in the basement of the Picasso, the the dorm. Um And it was a small space. It was very cozy. We had many guitars in there, not much floor space. We could hear the pipes um, with the water moving and everything. And our windows were just these narrow little bits of glass above our heads. And I, I didn't see the studio yet, but I did walk into the music center that it is a different world. It yes. is a different world now.
0: Yeah, you're going to love that studio. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, I can't wait to see it. That's a lovely space. And when you're in there too, I mean, you're going to be doing a master class today. I am, yes. With our guitar students. And I'm very excited for you because they are wonderful, interesting people. I am not surprised. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Each of them a distinct artist and they're mm-hmm. all just delightful. So uh, what is it when you teach master classes? What's the best part? What do you most look forward to when you're doing that?
1: Well, it's mostly hearing, the, diff- especially when I'm teaching the younger um, crowd, I guess, when they're playing guitar. It's just so amazing to see nowadays, the teenagers, the level has risen so much. When I was a teenager, they were good players, but I was usually one of the best ones. But if I compare my playing at 13, 14 to the playing of the 13 and 14-year-olds now, that's a different world. The level has risen a lot in the, in the U.S., and it's just wonderful to see, which means for the guitar world, we're going to have amazing artists in the future as well. Why do you think that is, though? I think they're starting early. Um, I remember when I was younger, the fact that I had started at five, that was unheard of almost, especially in Europe, maybe not so much because classical guitar was a viable instrument to choose. But in in the U.S., most classical guitarists, they came back came to it sort of later they would start on like rock and roll in their parents basement you know having a band and then all of a sudden they're like oh classical guitar is cool but by that time they're like 16 17 years old um, many freshmen in college were actually like kind of on a beginning level because again they used to play electric guitar with the pick and stuff but they never had nylon guitar training um, so I think it's the fact that now there are just more programs for younger kids to start young Every other instrument has it, you know, violin, you start with three, four, piano, yeah. three, four. And guitar, maybe you need to be a little bit older because three is very young and you need a little bit of strength in your fingers to to press. Um, but I started when I was four and a half, five. It's doable. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's what it is. We just have the, the teachers and it's getting better. So the teachers themselves are more experienced too. So you have a better teacher at a younger age and it just exponentially uh, grows.
0: Well, I can't wait for you to hear the skills from people coming up today. (laughs) And this is great because they have done some work for me today. Okay. And they gave me questions for you. All right, then. (laughs) And I love this. So listener, you're going to hear questions that our guitarists really want to know. But I think that you want to know the answer to these questions, too. uh, Because this will give us a great slice of Mm -hmm. your life, Gohar. So what they all want to know And this is, they're going to take this to heart no matter what you say. Oh, boy. (laughs) Um, What does your practice schedule look like? And then to kind of follow up, how is that impacted by travel, teaching, and other circumstances? Yeah,
1: I would say it's changed a lot over the years when... I was at school here, so high school, obviously you have your, your homework and test prep and stuff, but I would practice between two and three hours every day because it was my job. You know, I was a guitar major. When I went to college, that um, the academics became easier because I went to a music conservatory, so no math classes, you know, no just music-related classes. I had way more free time, and coming out of Interlaken, it, it's way more difficult to study here than it is anywhere else, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so having that prep, Going to college, I'm like, oh my god, this is so easy. It was seven o'clock. I was done with everything. I practice about four hours a day, and that included, you know, in college is more difficult because you're constantly learning new repertoire. That's part of the deal. You learn new pieces. You don't get to perform them many times. You you kind of prepare them for a uh, performance, and then you drop that piece, learn a new one, and you're still in a developing process. So you're you need to practice many hours to physically control your instrument. So I would say in college, it would be a mixture of technique and lots of slow practicing, lots of like really not just playing through pieces, but practicing them. Um, In grad school, I would say the same. I, again, I went to like for a music degree, so no other classes other than music. Um, And once you graduate, that's when sort of like real life starts. And no more classes, no more homework, but now you have to make a living. And though every one of us wants to completely make a living performing, it's not really possible. There are very few in the classical guitar world that only do performance. So you start teaching, and when you first start, you know you 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 teach as much as you can. You know, and I still teach a lot. Um, so now my schedule is mostly teaching, and I, I teach on Skype and in person. So my day will begin um, at nine o'clock in the morning. So I mostly teach adults that do it for a hobby. So they do have the flexibility to have a morning lesson. They're not at school, you know. So uh, the nine o'clock students, thank you. <laughs> so um, so I will teach depending on a day. It could be between four hours and eight hours. like So meeting four students or eight students, uh, that's the kind of the limit. And I'll practice in between. So right now, if I have a concert coming up, I will absolutely sacrifice social life and fun things to practice. But if I have a little bit of a gap between concerts, there might be days that if I teach eight hours, I'm not going to play guitar that day. And practice now, I can't really waste as much time. So if I used to have four hours to practice, now I only have two hours, let's say, on a specific day. And I have to be more focused on what I'm doing. And I have to like pick and choose what I'm going to, to work on so that I use that time efficiently. Um, If I'm lucky, I can do three hours a day. But if I'm being honest, that doesn't always happen. So three hours was happening in preparation for this concert. So in January, I have not skipped a single day of practicing, where in the past, you know, a couple of days might go by and the guitar is just sitting there looking at me. (laughs) Um, So practicing now is just Technique, maybe not as much as it used to be because once you already have it, you just have to maintain it. And none of the pieces that I am playing require me to learn a new skill. It's in terms of like technical ability. So I just have to maintain it. Um, And then it's memorizing my repertoire, practicing, learning new music. That's sort of what slows you down a little bit because if you have performances, you, you have to perform the pieces. And if you want to learn new repertoire, that's extra time you have to practice. So whenever I have a gap between concerts... But the structure, is it's still the same. I do a lot of slow practicing. I feel like it's way better to play a piece half tempo twice than to play it at tempo four times because you learn more from the slow practice and then when you practice faster, it, um, it really shows. And people will be surprised, like, you know, because I'm, I'm a fast player, okay, so... But I practice very slowly. And all of us who can play very fast and accurately and clean, it went through the slow process to really map out where your fingers are going, choreograph every single move. So you're not, you're being very efficient between notes. So a lot of the, if I'm being good, if I'm being a good student, (laughs) you know, I will practice slowly a lot and uh, to, to work on, on the pieces. And if I'm preparing for a concert, then the last week or so, I will make sure I'm running through the program as is in the order of the pieces. Um, Just sit down and play like it will be on stage. Minus the standing and the bowing, I don't do that. <laughs> not in practice. You do practice you know. that. No, I don't in front practice of the that. Or anything. Oh no! Well, I've done that before, so I know what not to do. Like you don't bow and keep your head up and stare at the audience. That's just super weird. <laughs> you look at your shoes, and then you're good.
0: So there you go practice everything. Yeah.
1: So we're scheduled basically during the I'll, I'll teach a couple of hours in the morning if I have a gap between students in the afternoon I will practice at that time. Uh, I mean I'll yeah teach and practice and then in the evenings I try to reserve the 7 to 9 p.m. slot for practicing. That's the regular slot that I do not teach at that time. Now do I always use it for practicing? It's a different story. Sometimes Netflix takes over. Um, but if there's something to prepare for so teaching, practicing, teaching,
0: practicing, and food somewhere in between. But <laughs> well, with all that time management and patience required, yeah. too, I think probably the Netflix is Well, you have important. to have a balance.
1: Like I say, you know, when a performance coming up, I sacrifice social life. But when there isn't one, you need to have a social life. I like going into the city and, and walking around and doing things, going to museums, going to concerts. So I do love that. It's not like I spend um, all day in a practice room. I, I would quit if I did that. I was never one to practice that many hours. Four was always my limit. Okay, students, did you hear that?
0: (laughs) Remember to take a break. You have to, Yeah. yeah.
1: You will burn out if you don't, especially if you're one who's played their entire life. I don't know a time that I haven't played guitar. So if I only played guitar, that's a really boring life to have, you know, to not do other things. It's exciting when something new, but to me, guitar is not new. Right. So I need to. It's just me. Like so, I need to do other things that are more exciting. So I never play for fun, which could come as a surprise mm-hmm. and maybe even kind of sad. But I don't. I play guitars because it's my job, right? So when I sit down to practice, I sit down to improve something, to work on something. I rarely pick up a guitar and play a tune I like, you know. Which I find that a lot of my students who do it for a hobby, that's their whole entire goal, right? It's them to just play for fun. But for me, that. Time with the guitar is precious because I have responsibilities with it. So, yeah, sometimes I will just sight-read a piece because I like the way it sounds. But usually if I'm with my, my friend, the guitar, it's usually work. And if I want to do things for fun, they have nothing to do with guitar. They're completely things outside of music.
0: And that's equally important, again, yeah. that balance thing. So, okay, I have another one from uh-huh. the, from the <laughs> yes. guitarists. And they all want to know... Which guitarists mm-hmm. were influential to you at the beginning of your studies, and how that has changed? So, um, because
1: I started, my dad was my first teacher. I did. I was not the one who picked the guitar, so I can't say there was a guitarist I heard and like, oh my god, I need to play guitar because I heard someone. But growing up in the in a household of a dad who plays guitar and loves guitar, and um, it was just part of it. Paco de Lucia was constantly. In on our record somewhere we had walls plastered with his posters uh where when i was little my parents would tell me that i thought that was my dad because my dad and him look kind of similar with the same kind of haircut <laughs> so for a moment like you know you're young you don't tell the, the dif- difference in like facial features i would think the picture on the wall is of my dad but it's actually de so i grew up listening to flamenco a lot when i was younger um i remember listening to john Williams and. Uh, and, and Manuel Barrueco, so who I ended up studying with later, um, they were sort of uh, in the in the house back then, like in the, Sharon Isbin as well, who also ended up being in my teacher, <laughs> in a, one of in my grad school as a teacher. So grew up listening to them, um, but I can't say like they were my influence. I think Paco de Lucia left the impression because it's, it's flamenco and it's so fiery,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so like just all engulfing. Um, One person I can't choose. But then again, I ended up studying with the two of them. So they did end up being a huge influence on my playing because I learned from them.
0: Yeah. And how was that, by the way, Mm -hmm. listening to Ispin and Uh Barrueco and being their student?
1: Yeah, well, when I was listening to them, I was too young to really understand the difference, and I remember <laughs> I would just to be different from my dad. I had obviously no idea what I was talking about. I would just argue with him that I like John Williams's playing more than Barreco's. You know, it's just, <laughs> just just to be different. You know, and they're very different players, not even comparable. But you know, I had to be the opposite of what my dad clearly preferred <laughs> Barreco <laughs> over Williams. But <laughs> um, but I had to be different. It was. At first, it's a little surreal because it's uh, these people whose recordings you listen to. And then they're there sitting, giving you the advice that they've used themselves to sound like they do. So it was, I didn't really have like a celebrity sort of like thing where, because it's not my personality. It wasn't like, oh my God, you know, but learning from them, like listening to the recordings and then understanding how they did it. Like, and how much work goes in to making it sound the way they made it sound. Mm-hmm. their thought process, basically what's behind the scenes. Because you, when you're just listening to the recording, you see the final result. You don't see how they think, what they do to make it happen.
0: Yeah, we talked about that for a minute, about how people don't know what's under the hood.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When you're playing. Yeah, they don't. They just think like, oh, you're just moving some fingers, plucking some strings, uh, and then this beautiful music comes out. Hopefully, but there's so much that goes on that in the details, the preparation, the listening—not just playing, but the music you listen to, what what's in your head, you know, the, what you know about it, and then how to teach your fingers to do everything.
0: Uh-huh. Now, is there something under the hood that might be surprising to our young guitarists or to our listeners?
1: Um that practice, I guess it's it's really work. And if you're having too much fun, you're probably not doing it right. I'm not <laughs> saying practice is not fun. It can be if you have the right mindset. You have to be in love with the process of improving it. So when I play it very, very slowly to somebody else, it might sound extremely boring and they might be ready to pull their hair out. But I've gotten used to that process where I know that if I put in the time and I play something extremely slowly a couple of times, I will be able to reap the benefits later when I'm playing faster. My fingers are just doing what I want them to do. So there is that aspect of like actually looking at it as a more tangible thing. Like if you saw a wall that's like has a crack in it, you're not going to just keep looking at that wall with the crack in it. You will go fix it. So when you're practicing and something's not working, slow down, understand what you're doing, try to fix it and better it every day. And then Sometimes you don't see the results every day, like you don't see it from yesterday to today to tomorrow. But you look back a month and you're like, whoa, that doesn't sound like it sounds so much more different.
0: So listeners, if you're going to, for instance, Gohar's recital, <laughs> uh, expect that. If you're hearing fireworks and so forth, know that that race car was not always a race car. It had yes, to be yeah. a perambulator at some and point.
1: And you absolutely have to practice fast, of course. Like, how are you going to play fast if you never do? But you need to have your foundation strong. Your your wheels have to be attached very, very well to the <laughs> car. So when you drive it fast, you're, you're not like falling apart. And hopefully that... Shows <laughs> and then you, you have the other aspect you have pu- pu- you put people in front of um the uh, you yourself and all that practice hopefully holds up,
0: you and know. That's a thing, isn't it's it? It's a thing.
1: Well, we had that earlier, you know, you press the record button and all of a sudden I had perf I perfectly played the piece way before you guys were in the room and I was like, oh, this is great. And then I hear that we're rolling and I play it again and I forget what the next note is <laughs> just because I'm aware that a button has been pressed. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a thing. <laughs>
0: yeah, a guitar is a very fiddly instrument.
1: Very fiddly. About that too. Yeah,
0: it's just the room for
1: error is so little. Like, I'm not saying piano is easier. It isn't because the repertoire for the piano has become so difficult. This Roman knows to play, but your key is you know an inch wide, a little less. But the chances of missing it is lower if you're a proficient pianist. The chances of missing something on the guitar, they're so high because it's not about you missing something by a whole inch it's millimeters and angles you put something and you put the weight on or in a wrong direction on your finger and it'll buzz or it will touch something else so another note will buzz and and those things like in a concert it doesn't matter as much because you know you're you have distance between the person playing and where you are and you're there to experience that one live performance but when you're recording it's everything's in your ear
0: and uh, yeah Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. But that makes a recital so organic. Yeah. Right? Because every time. You can't go back and fix it. (laughs) Yeah. It's going to be a little different. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, speaking of playing. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, Gohar has brought three pieces for us to hear today. Gohar, I'm so excited. Can you tell us about the first piece, this prelude you're going to play for
1: us? The prelude is from Suite in A Minor by Manuel Maria Ponce, who um, was a Mexican composer. And this piece has an in- in- interesting story behind it. It was commissioned by Segovia um, from, from Ponce to be written for the guitar. So it's a 20th century piece. And he had commissioned him to write the piece in the style of Silvius Leopold Weiss, who was a Baroque lutenist. Contemporary of Bach. And he wanted this piece to um, kind of be like a fake Weiss piece that he was going to pass off as an original, like newly found Weiss Weiss work that was, you know, newly discovered. And for the longest time, it was actually published as Sweden A Minor by Silvius Leopold Weiss. So we didn't even. No, it was written by Ponce. And then, you know, over time, truth always comes out. So we learned (laughs) that it was actually written in the 20th century by a Mexican composer and not in the 1700s, (laughs) you know, by a German litmus. Um, And Ponce is really good at imitating style. So when you first listen to it, it could pass off. If you know very well Weiss's music, you will know that it's not. But you have to be really familiar. If you're just listening to some Weiss and then you listen to this suite, oh, sure, it fits, you know. So that's oh. the prelude, and the suite is just a, a standard dance suite from the Baroque period. It's a prelude, allemande, um, Saraband, two gavottes, and a jig. So at, in the recital, I will play the whole thing, but today I only have the prelude.
0: First, let's hear Gohar Fardanian with this prelude by Manuel Maria Ponce. Mm-hmm. Prelude by Manuel Maria Ponce, in which he is doing the old Fritz Chrysler trick, right? So Fritz Chrysler used to pretend that he had discovered works of Vivaldi that had been buried in a trunk somewhere. Not true. He and Paganini, I think, as well. And Paganini, yeah. yeah, all of those. And there's also some Paganini in your recital. There is.
1: Up. Yeah, that Paganini suite, uh, sonata is um, actually originally for violin and guitar. And one of my former former teachers, Manuel Barreco, he did a transcription for solo guitar. So this will be a violinist and guitarist in one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wonderful. So okay, I have another one from uh-huh. the, from the <laughs> yes. guitarists. And they all want to know which guitarists mm-hmm. were influential to you at the beginning of your studies and how that has changed.
1: So, um, because I started, my dad was my first teacher. I did. I was not the one who picked the guitar, so I can't say there was a guitarist I heard and like, oh my god, I need to play guitar because I heard someone. But growing up in the in a household of a dad who plays guitar and loves guitar, and um, it was just part of it. Paco de Lucia was constantly and on our record somewhere we had walls plastered with his posters uh where when I was little my parents would tell me that I thought that was my dad because my dad and him look kind of similar with the same kind of haircut <laughs> so for a moment like you know you're young you don't tell the, the dif- difference in like facial features I would think the picture on the wall is of my dad but it's actually de so I grew up listening to flamenco a lot when I was younger um I remember listening to John Williams and. Uh, and, and Manuel Barrueco, so who I ended up studying with later, um, they were sort of uh, in the in the house back then, like in the, um, Sharon Isbin as well, who also ended up being in my teacher, <laughs> in a, one of, in my grad school as a teacher. So grew up listening to them, um, but I can't say like they were my influence. I think Paco de Lucia left the impression because it's, it's flamenco and it's so fiery,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so like just all engulfing. Um, one person I can't choose. But then again, I ended up studying with the two of them. So they did end up being a huge influence on my playing because I
0: learned from them. Yeah. And how was that, by the way, mm-hmm. listening to Ispin and Barueco uh-huh. and being their student?
1: Yeah, well, when I was listening to them, I was too young to really understand the difference. And I remember, <laughs> I would just to be different from my dad. I had obviously no idea what I was talking about. I would just argue with him that I like John Williams's playing more than Barruecos. You know, it's just, <laughs> just just to be different. You know, and they're very different players, not even comparable. But you know, I had to be the opposite of what my dad clearly preferred <laughs> Barreiros <laughs> over Williams. But <laughs> um, but I had to be different. It was. At first, it's a little surreal because it's uh, these people whose recordings you listen to and then they're there sitting, giving you the advice that they've used themselves to sound like they do. So it was, I didn't really have like a celebrity sort of like thing where, because it's not my personality, it wasn't like, oh my God, you know, but learning from them, like listening to the recordings and then understanding how they did it, like, and how much work goes in to making it sound the way they made it sound. Mm-hmm. Their thought process, basically what's behind the scenes. You because when you're just listening to the recording, you see the final result. You don't see how they think, what they do to make it happen.
0: Yeah, we talked about that for a minute about how people don't know what's under the hood. Yeah. Yeah. when you're playing. Yeah, they don't. They
1: just think like, oh, you're just moving some fingers, plucking some strings, uh, and then this beautiful music comes out. Hopefully, but there's so much that goes on that in the details, the preparation, the listening—not just playing, but the music you listen to, what what's in your head, you know, the, what you know about it, and then how to teach your fingers to do everything.
0: Uh-huh. Now, is there something under the hood that might be surprising to our young guitarists or to our listeners?
1: Um that practice I guess it's it's really work and if you're having too much fun you're probably not doing it right I'm not (laughs) saying practice is not fun it can be if you have the right mindset you have to be in love with the process of improving it so when I play it very very slowly to somebody else it might sound extremely boring and they might be ready to pull their hair out but I've gotten used to that process where I know that if I put in the time and I play something extremely slowly a couple of times, I will be able to reap the benefits later when I'm playing faster. My fingers are just doing what I want them to do. So there is that aspect of like actually looking at it as a more tangible thing. Like if you saw a wall that's like has a crack in it, you're not going to just keep looking at that wall with the crack in it. You will go fix it. So when you're practicing and something's not working, slow down, understand what you're doing, try to fix it and better it every day. And then Sometimes you don't see the results every day, like you don't see it from yesterday to today to tomorrow. But you look back a month and you're like, whoa, that doesn't sound like it sounds so much more different.
0: So listeners, if you're going to, for instance, Gohar's recital, <laughs> uh, expect that. If you're hearing fireworks and so forth, know that that race car was not always a race car. It had yes, to be yeah. a perambulator at some and point.
1: And you absolutely have to practice fast, of course. Like, how are you going to play fast if you never do? But you need to have your foundation strong. Your your wheels have to be attached very, very <laughs> well to the <laughs> car. So when you drive it fast, you're, you're not like falling apart. And hopefully that... Shows <laughs> and you, <laughs> then you have the other aspect you have people pu- pu- you put people in front of um the uh, you yourself and all that practice hopefully holds up, you and know. That's a
0: thing, isn't it's it? It's a
1: thing. Well, we had that earlier, you know, you press the record button and all of a sudden I had perf I perfectly played the piece way before you guys were in a room and I was like, oh, this is great. And then I hear that we're rolling and I play it again and I forget what the next note is <laughs> <laughs> just because I'm aware that a button has been pressed. So right. yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, and guitar is a very fiddly instrument. Very talk fiddly. About that too.
1: Yeah, it's just the room for error is so little. Like, I'm not saying piano is easier. It isn't because the repertoire for the piano has become so difficult. This instrument knows to play, but your key is you know an inch wide, a little less. But the chances of missing it is lower if you're a proficient pianist. The chances of missing something on the guitar, they're so high because it's not about you missing a, something by a whole inch it's millimeters and angles you put something and you put the weight on or in a wrong direction on your finger and it'll buzz or it will touch something else so another note will buzz and and those things like in a concert it doesn't matter as much because you know you're you have distance between the person playing and where you are and you're there to experience that one live performance but when you're recording it's everything's in your ear and uh, yeah yeah <laughs> oh my goodness but that
0: makes a recital so organic yeah right because every time you can't time go back and fix it <laughs> yeah it's gonna be a little different i'm playing
1: the uh, recuerdos de la alhambra by francisco tarrega which not all the guitarists know this but i'm sure some non-guitarists have also heard the piece um that one's cool because it we were talking earlier Uh, The tremolo technique that we use, everyone thinks there's multiple people playing it. Mm -hmm. And they're just like fascinated how it's possible to get these simultaneous sounds. And all it is is us, maybe I shouldn't give the secret out, but all it is is just our right hand thumb plays the bass notes and our right hand ring, middle, and index finger plucks the melody note three times in a row. So your pattern is thumb and then ring, middle, and index. So you just keep repeating that in a right hand. And then you change the chords and the bass notes and it creates this dual Sound where the bass has its own melody and the the tremolo part, the higher pitch has its own more connected melody. It's our fake way of uh, sustaining notes.
0: Oh, <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. And yeah. we'll put video of this up on our website. Sure. Yeah, you, so can, you can see can the watch Gohar's thumb. Yeah, watch her fingers. Go. The fingers. So again, you can watch the fingers fly. Recuerda Talhambra, alhambra. Listen there, and you can find that at our website. Making the fountains with four fingers.
1: <laughs> the third piece will be Francisco Calejas' "Canción Triste." He's a Span- was, I guess. I actually I need to look up his dates. Um, Spanish composer, and this one is not very um, often played. It's a short piece. Um, I'm not aware of him writing other things. Maybe he has, but this is the only one I'm familiar with. It's a beautiful piece with alternate tuning. So my low two strings are tuned a step lower than they usually are. So it has like a deeper, um, lower sound to the guitar, which I love.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's kind of a happy, sad song. Yeah,
1: yeah. In the middle, it kind of becomes major. So yeah.
0: And now here is Gohar Van Danen with Cancion Triste by Francisco Caleja. cancion triste by francisco caleja what a beautiful piece that is yeah it's really pretty yes. i used to play it when i was um
1: when i was much younger my dad made me learn it and he made me learn it because it has like this intricate bass movement for the thumb so it was kind of he did a lot he taught me pieces for technical purposes so because i would never do exercises i would be so bored from so he found a strategy where he would teach me a piece spe- specifically for a technique that it has and I didn't like it because I mean I'm a kid I didn't care if it was beautiful or not they just you know it was taking me away from my friends so and it was hard to do the thumb and that's why I didn't like the piece because it was actually something that was challenging <laughs> um, and I, I just stopped playing it for the longest time and recently I just pulled it out I'm like why why has it, this not been in my repertoire? <laughs>
0: And lucky us we get to yeah, hear it there you go that's fantastic uh now this is great because I, I you're mentioning the thumb and all of the practice i'm going to ask you a really esoteric question okay our young guitarists <laughs> but i think that the rest of our listeners will find this interesting too again because mm-hmm. we're looking under the hood a little bit mm-hmm. with the guitar gohar what are some problems that you have encountered with tone production well,
1: well, <laughs> tone. Yes, I, clearly this gu- question is from guitarists. Um, oh, our nails. Our nails are like, they're the bane of our existence. Mm-hmm. If they're like, just like a little off, you know, they're just not filed the right way and you try to pluck a string and the ugliest sound comes out. And if you're someone who cares about the sound quality, that is disturbing. Um, so I would say like, if my if my nails are not in good shape, then yeah. However, I've personally been very lucky. I have good nails. I I can't like they're you know they grow normal at the normal rate. They don't wear out as much. As long as I don't break them, which ninety five percent of the time it's fine. But I've had stupid things happen um, where I've accidentally broken a nail and then have to wait for a couple of weeks for them to like grow so I could get a normal tone out. Um, most recently it happened actually before a performance and that was so dumb. I washed my hands and I went to use the paper towels, you know, like in public bathrooms, you have those, uh, this, um, I don't know, round thing you rotate for the paper towel to come out. And that thing was actually, no, it wasn't one of those. It was like a handle I had to pull down and the handle was kind of broken and my hands were wet. So they were more slippery, which also because they were wet, my nails were more sensitive because they're wet. They're more fragile. And when I went to pull this handle down so that the paper towel comes out, my finger slipped and it totally tore off my um, index finger, my complete, not finger, the fingernail, right. completely off. Oh. And I looked at it and I'm like, oh, there were u- words used that I'm not going to say on the radio, but, <laughs> you know, they went in my head and I'm like, okay, my concert is in one week. This is not growing back. Right. <laughs> and for a moment, it was like a second of panic. I'm like, well, I can't do anything about it. So I had to play with a fake nail. So And I've never done that before. I mean, I've used them in the past, if that has happened for practicing, never for a performance. So now, in a way like that performance, I was different sort of nervous because I wasn't nervous about the pieces. I was nervous about the nail flying off (laughs) because I didn't want to use... Like you, the options are you super glue a fake nail, like an acrylic nail, mm-hmm. um, or you use double-sided nail stickers that hold the acrylic in place. That's what I went for because once you superglue something on your nails, it damages your own nail. Okay, and I wanted the actual thing to grow. So it held, it held, but now my worry wasn't about the pieces, which in a way helped. <laughs> I guess, <yeah. laughs> It was just more like, oh my God, am I, am going to still have an index finger in the middle of this piece or is it going to fly off? So tone production, it's, it's just finicky and annoying and you're constantly like buffing your nails and making sure it's pretty and yeah. So that's
0: just going to be a universal thing. It's a universal thing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now yeah. I have to mention right now, because we have a student guitarist with us, Paloma, come here a second, Paloma. You broke your nail today, (laughs) didn't you?
1: Yes, I did. Um, So a word to the wise, don't over practice before master class. So as I was playing the Lagnani Fantasia, um, I plucked a super big cord and my A finger, which is my ring finger, uh, tore. So I had to file it down and um, it's okay.
0: Thank goodness. But
1: not ideal. Not ideal. (laughs) Not ideal. Um. I've been practicing and I can, I can play, but not as well as I wanted to today. So but now I mean, we have the excuse while the tone might not be that good. Yes. This, exactly. this tells me stuff. So when you play later today in a master class and the sound isn't good, I can't be like, I think you need to work on your sound on the E string, because you will just say, I broke a nail. The, right there you yes. go so good luck
0: paloma yes and hopefully i'm sure i'm sure Gohar will has been good advice for you later but on how to play around
1: that's with. how much it matters like when you the nails the tone like you break a nail and it's it's like walking and <laughs> you don't have a shoe on one foot and you don't have a shoe on the other foot <laughs> so, Wow!
0: oh yeah i'm so excited for them to get to hang out with you today me too oh, me too it's gonna be so good and then we all get to hang out with you Thursday night at 7.30 in the Dendrinos Chapel and Recital Hall. Could you please tell us about your recital and invite us? Well, the recital is going to be
1: some of my favorite pieces. I usually am being selfish that way. I always pick music that I like to play. <laughs> so um, And hopefully that everyone who comes will enjoy it as well. So it will be the Ponce Suite I mentioned earlier. Um, then I'll play some Argentinian pieces by Astor Piazzola. It will be some uh, a two tangos and a milonga in the middle. Um, in the second half, it will be the Paganini Sonata, and followed by Evocación y Danza by Joaquín Rodrigo, one of my all-time favorites. And actually, if I remember correctly, the ending of this program, so it's the Evocación y Danza, then um, three Albenis pieces were or originally for piano, Asturias, um, Cordoba, and Sevilla. If I do remember correctly, it, I played those exact pieces on my senior recital here. Really? Yes, in 2004. And it was—it's by coincidence. It wasn't on purpose. It's just I love those pieces, and over time, I've never taken Evocación y Danza out of my program. Um, obviously, I stopped playing it when I was in college, but when I came back as a like you know actual playing professional, um, never stopped. And then Sevilla also has stayed, and Córdoba and, and Asturias kind of came and went. So the fact that they're all together, and I looked, I thought back, I'm like, I think I've definitely played them on that stage before. I just can't remember if I played all of them on my senior recital or not.
0: It's very possible. It is possible, because I think I may have seen the archived recording. Uh-huh. If I can find it, I will send it to you.
1: Oh, that, um, I think, actually, I have a, I have a, I have that on CD. Yeah. I do, I have that. de uh, Danza absolutely was on that program, and I think Sevilla was, a, I just can't remember if Córdoba and Asturias were.
0: Well, I, I think we'll look it up, and we can answer that yes. question for yeah. you. Yeah,
1: so that's the program, so I hope you guys will come and enjoy.
0: <laughs> it's going to be wonderful stuff, and if you've never heard Gohar play, well, you just did, so I think you know what you're in for there. Um oh I wanted to ask you one last thing. Yeah. Because you mentioned the piazzola. Yes. I saw you play that on Instagram uh-huh. today. And listen, this is this brand new thing. Like you have a ferocious great Instagram oh, account yeah. and channel. Oh yeah. And for artists now, can we talk about how like how important this is? You said if it's didn't I think happen so. on Instagram, yeah, I was happen. joking
1: because you were you were filming right, just like some pictures and everything for Instagram. And the joke was that if you don't put it on Instagram, did it actually happen? And it it is new, obviously. Like when I was at school, we didn't have that. Facebook started when I was in college, but it wasn't used the way it's being used now. I think it's it's important in a way that you, it makes you more human. You know, right? You're not just like this. Artist that you have a website and people can read your bio and it, that bio is like 20 years old because no one updates them. Um, you get to see that person on a daily basis and it really depends on how you treat your Instagram and your YouTube. People do different things. For me personally for YouTube and the Piazzolla that you saw is actually a video I made for YouTube so it's more polished you know the nice microphones are used for it and all of that. It's edited and you have different angles and I just shared it on Instagram. So YouTube I kind of use to showcase pieces at the best level that they can be. And I have some instructional videos as well so people can see how you teach. And for me, YouTube acts as a way of bringing in students because there's so many people out there. So people can, maybe they're looking up a piece they want to work work on and they see my video teaching that piece and they can see how I teach my personality and so so on. And then they contact me for lessons and they kind of already have an idea what they're getting into. Um, Instagram, the way it started, I think maybe six years ago or so, I noticed I had a travel Instagram where I was just putting pictures for my travels. I noticed a lot of guitarists started following it. And I'm like, okay. I don't like sharing my personal life on on social media because I feel like it's no one's business. (laughs) So I needed like a professional one. So I made a guitar Instagram. And that one I treat more like a behind the scenes kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You'll see a lot of, Things, uh, videos, or like little reels, me, uh, pictures, posts, whatever, uh, of me practicing. And sometimes you will have that slow practicing I was talking about earlier. Um, little sections, little little practice techniques. So I try to make it so it's valuable to the other person, either in form in terms of instructional material or even or entertainment. Um, so it's always something with the guitar. So personally, I think if you have a professional Instagram, it should be related to your profession. I'm never going to post my breakfast on it unless I'm having breakfast with another guitarist. Then it's different, All right, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, but I think it is important. It gives, gives your audience a way to contact you, to ask you questions, to see what you do on a daily basis. And then, you
0: know, maybe come to your concert and meet you in person. So, yeah. And hopefully they will. I follow Gohar on Instagram. I think you should too. I think it's a really, really, I do. I think your content's really interesting, whether Thank you play you. The guitar or not.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, I try to keep it because the people who follow you, they follow for a reason, right? If it's a guitar lover and all of a sudden I start putting pictures of shoes, which I love shoes, but then it's like, what? Why is there a stiletto <laughs> appearing on this guitar page? <laughs> so. so all guitar, no shoes. All guitar, no shoes. Right. Unless they're concert shoes. <laughs>
0: Fair, totally. We'll have to see what what shoes Gohar is wearing in concert on Thursday. They are
1: sparkly high heels. Yeah, come and see them.
0: (laughs) For for nothing else, if for nothing
1: else, come see the sparkly shoes.
0: (laughs) Uh, Gohar Vardanyan, what a pleasure to talk with you today. Welcome home.
1: Thank you. Yes, it does feel like home. Yeah, I was walking around campus with like a a smile on my face, like a fool, just like smiling at everything. So yeah, wonderful. It's home.
0: So you can join Gohar for her homecoming. Again, that's Thursday, February the 1st, 7.30 p.m. in the Dendrinos Chapel and Recital Hall. Thanks again to Gohar. I'm Kate Botello. Thanks so much for listening. Studio A is a production of Interlaken Public Radio, part of Interlaken Center for the Arts. Our recording engineer is Kelly Di Pasquale. Amanda Sewell is our music director. Our digital content manager is Emily Duncan Wilson. Learn more at interlockinpublicradio.org.